There we go. I turned it on, but I muted it as well. Very good. Cool. Well, let's keep going. Um, I think a lot of times with, we, when we think about going into the world, we do think about going and sharing the gospel, um, which is very important, obviously, but a lot of the times I think, um, it's, like I said before, it's showing the love of Jesus to people that haven't experienced it yet that is going to do the groundwork for them to be willing to hear the gospel and for God then to work through his power so that they might accept the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Um, that's what we're told to do, isn't it, um, as a church? In Acts 1, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria or to the ends of the earth. Matthew's account of this great commission, we know that Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And the apostles did go, didn't they? Um, the church heard this call to go. And all down through history, the church has heard the command to go time and time again. The very reason that we're all here today is because someone heeded a call to go and to come to us. And so I thought this morning, as I come to encourage you guys today around the Word, let's have a look at why we, or be encouraged together, why we must also think about going as well. So we move from that Great Commission or in Acts 1 to this, this story that we're at now, and I just wanted to do a real quick sort of rehash, a summary of what's gone on during this time in the local church or in the church as it's growing. And um, they, they started off by meeting in the temple. Uh, the place that they had recognised had religious significance to them as a people. And there's been a bit of pushback from the Jewish leaders at this time. Peter and John were arrested, but when they were freed, the believers gathered to pray for boldness to continue proclaiming the gospel, even in the midst of persecution and opposition. They had everything in common. They were living their lives in community. They were growing in faith. And through sharing it with others, their numbers were growing quite significantly. But so was the persecution. It comes to an abrupt point when one of the new disciples, Stephen, was martyred. He was murdered for his faith. And this instigates a turn of violence towards the church, led by a man named Saul, which causes the church to scatter outside of Jerusalem, to start meeting in believers' homes and moving out, of the, out into the surrounding regions. And then we know the story, don't we, that Saul himself, who had once persecuted the church, is converted to faith. Jesus quite literally knocks Saul off his horse and shows him the error of his ways. We can see through this fir these first few chapters of Acts that God is moving his church on. They were commanded to go into all the world and, seeing, and we're seeing the beginning of this now, I think. There's a group of disciples still in Jerusalem, yes, they're actually considered the leaders of the church, and more, but more and more what we're seeing in the stories as we, we read through Acts is the spreading out into the surrounding areas as well. And then in chapter 9, verse 32, we're brought back to Peter. Peter is the one who first preached that gospel message at Pentecost in Jerusalem. He's the one that Jesus said, uh, you are the rock, Peter, on which I will build this church. And, and, and what we've heard, what we hear about in, in, in chapter 9 there about Peter is that he's actually been around here and there amongst all that is happening in the church. But the author of the book now, Luke, is now bringing us back to this story of Peter because what he's about to do is play a huge role in the next era 
of how the church is going to go and make disciples of all nations. Because here's the thing, up until this point, believing and following Jesus was what these people were doing in the context of a Jewish understanding. Jesus was their Messiah. He had died for them and he had saved them just like they had been promised. But what we're going to see here today is that through what Jesus is about to teach Peter is that the gospel is for everyone, not just the Jews. And for us here as a church in 2023, this is a relevant reminder, I think, for us that we still need to be going out into all the world, whether or not that is across the road, across the nation, or to the far ends of the earth. And so I know we've read through Acts already, this, um, Acts 10 already just now, and thank you for that. But what I want to do now as we continue in our sermon this morning is just step back through the story um, and, and stop at a few points to see how Peter has taught this important lesson and what God is doing through all of it. But before I do that, why don't I pray uh, and, and then we'll, we'll crack into it. Lord Jesus, as we come this morning, I do pray that, that as you open Peter's eyes to what you were doing in his life at this point, you would open our lives to what you were saying to us this morning. Lord Jesus, we understand that you are the saviour of our life, but you are also the Lord of our life, and that where you command us to go, we go. What you command us to do, we do. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, today... May this passage and, and what we can pull out of it today be very centred around what your Holy Spirit is saying to us in our own lives and to how we interact with people who don't know you yet uh, and, and, Lord, that we know you love very much. So, Lord, with all of this, we just ask that your will be done. Amen. And so I'm just going to read the first uh, eight verses again, just as we start stepping through. Um, it'll pop up there. I'm not sure how easy it is to see up there. If you have your own Bibles, you can read along as well. But, but just again, just to reiterate the start of this story, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with his, all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from amongst those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So like I was saying before, um, following Jesus had been something that was contained to the Jewish religious realm at this up to this point. But here's the amazing thing about this story. It begins with Cornelius... It doesn't, the story doesn't start with a Jew. And it doesn't start with just a Gentile either. A Gentile, if you're not aware, is, is, is anyone who's not a Jew, a foreigner. But, but, but Cornelius is not just a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion. 
He's someone whose title alone would have been thought of as an enemy to the Jews. The Romans were the conquerors of Israel. Their centurions were the soldiers of those conquerors. But at this point, I want to remind us who Luke, the author of this book of Acts, is actually writing to. Um, A man named Theophilus. We see that in Acts 1, he actually says this to Theophilus, I'm continuing to write to you. He wrote the book, the Gospel of Luke was written to Theophilus as well to explain um, who Jesus was. But now he's sort of saying, and Theophilus, I'm continuing the story of the church so that you might understand more about what it means to have faith in Jesus. Um, from his name, Theophilus, we, we can assume that he himself is probably a Gentile. It was a Roman name. And so, can you imagine Theophilus as a Roman himself reading this account and this story starts with someone like him? His reaction actually would probably differ than if a Jewish person was reading this story. Um, so as Theophilus reads it, what he sees is that centurions were, were seen as good leaders. They were very well trained, they were very, very disciplined. The Italian cohort that was mentioned here is actually part of a larger army, known not just for regular recruits, but for intelligent and highly trained people, kind of like the special forces of the Roman army. And so this man would have been of high regard to Theophilus, the the first intended reader of this letter or book. But but then we see that that he is not just a centurion, Cornelius. No, this non-Jew is also a man that was held in high esteem by the Jews. He's a devout, God-fearing man. Now, that's not telling us that he was a Jewish convert, but that he was sympathetic and attentive to the Jewish God and the religious practices of the people around him. We learn that he gives alms, that he's generous to these people. Presumably, we're being told that he's generous to the Jewish religious people and to the poor in that city. And we hear that he prays to God. So not only is he kind and generous, but he acts on a belief in the existence of the Jewish God by praying to him. But let's again just keep remembering that that he's not a Jew and he probably actually prayed to the Roman gods as well. But what we're seeing at this point in our story is that God is moving. God has some grand plan here and he's starting to move the pieces into place. Because God sends a message to Cornelius and says, I've taken note of the the, the things that you have been doing. Now, just think about that for a second. God has sent a messenger to someone who, though they may be kind and generous and devout in religious practices, are neither a Christian or a Jew. God speaks to this guy who, who, who actually isn't a believer And that's really important for us to grasp onto, I think. It's good for us to remember that God speaks to people who don't yet know Him. I believe that still happens today. I've had conversations with football players who have talked about the fact that they've felt this something within them about maybe something that's going on in their family life or something that's going on with, with, with relatives or a hard situation. And they've said, it feels like I'm being told to do this. Or, it feels like I'm being told to come and talk to you, Dino. 
I even had one player in the middle of a football game say, Dean, my legs aren't working. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, I just don't feel like I'm up to anything today. But can you just pray for me? And here I am sitting with my hand on the shoulder of this 20-year-old guy in the middle of a footy changing room at halftime in a game when everyone is sort of focusing football and I'm praying for a young man because he's felt a sense that he needed to ask me to pray for him. It's important for us to realise that God is tapping people on the shoulders before they know or recognise who he is. And it's because God is actually preparing them to then come in contact with a believer and to come in contact with his gospel. But for the benefit of our narrative in today's passage, and I think for the understanding of this huge moment in the church, what what Cornelius is, is that Cornelius is actually a bridging character for the church. He's a well-respected Gentile, but he's also probably one who is well-respected by the Jews who've been recipients of his arms, kindness and devoutness. And so God is now going to use Peter because that's what the angel's message is all about, go and get Peter. And the first little thing we need to take note of is that Cornelius obeys. He listens. Just remember that as we move forward in the story because I just want to read the next part now. So from verse 9, it says that the next day, we're now transferred um, away from Cornelius, um, to, uh, but, but still remembering that as they, that's those people that Cornelius has sent, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by the four corners um, upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken back up at once to heaven. Straight up here, we see that God is still acting. He's actually doing something here in our story, don't we? Just as Cornelius' men are arriving in the town where Peter is, Peter has a vision that is actually going to directly relate to why those men are in the town. But not only that, this vision also directly relates to where Peter's at in his day, isn't he? He's hungry and he has a vision about food. Can I tell you how many times that's happened to me? Like, I don't know if God's ever sent those visions, but there's a lot of time when I'm hungry, I might be driving along the road and suddenly I'm thinking about that Big Mac in a way I probably haven't thought about that Big Mac before. But God's using this at this time. We see here that Peter is being prepared for something. God's timing in all of this is actually perfect. And we're going to see that again and again as we go through the story. The vision itself is important. God is teaching Peter something new here and I think we we in hindsight sometimes gloss over this fact this is going to be something totally revolutionary for Jewish Christians he's instigating God himself here is instigating a new era of evangelism where the gospel is for everyone 
The family of God is now widening from Israel to all nations, to anyone who believes. And, but this is going to be a steep learning curve for the nation of Israel. This is going to be hard for them and so God is actually going to be moving here in a very decisive and active way to ensure that first that Peter gets it so that he can then act and lead in a way that the church is going to get it as well. Because you know what? Peter's first initial reaction to this vision is actually the way a good Jew should have reacted to what he saw. I mean, Jewish food laws were very strict Peter's um, reaction in verse 14 to these animals that were unclean is actually the way a good Jew should have responded. All this stuff is laid out before him, he's told to eat it and he says no, because to eat these things as a Jewish person would actually disconnect him from God. That's what the law told him, that's what he'd learnt all of his life, that being unclean meant that your access to the temple, your access to religious service, your access to the community that you were a part of would be disconnected for a time period until which you were clean again. And so by rejecting this call to eat, Peter is actually thinking that he's being obedient to God. He's probably thinking, this vision is a test, I'm hungry I've fallen asleep and I've got all this unclean food before me and I'm being told to eat it. This is a test. I need to be strong here. Don't do it, Peter, he's probably saying to himself. But then we realise that highlighting that this is actually something that we, we, we need to be obedient to God in and actually following the direction. He sees this vision how many times? Three times. God comes back to it again and again Three times in, in the Jewish and Hebrew sort of way of thinking was, was a divine way of receiving a message from God. And so probably on that third time, Peter is suddenly going, hang on, maybe this is not a test, but maybe God is teaching me something new, that the gospel isn't just for Jews or Jewish converts. Maybe Peter's not picking quite that up yet, as we'll see, but, but where Peter starts to realise that there's something different going on here. We know that God is teaching Peter that this is because we're showing you this is not about food, this is about the fact that that the the gospel is for more than just the Jews. There's an extra measure of grace here that is being asserted to mean that what was once unclean is not so anymore. This isn't just a lesson that Peter should go downstairs and have a bacon sandwich and a side of lobster for lunch, as good as that sounds. Um, No, fundamentally, the purpose of this message is about a new food that you can eat. It's not about a new food you can eat, but about a fact that God has the right, God in His sovereignty has the right to declare things that were unclean, now clean. And God is doing that now with the Gospel, that Jesus can make anyone clean. But we need to understand that Peter hasn't quite got that part of the message yet. He's being prepared to understand it, but but that hasn't quite happened yet. God's timing is going to help him, and we're going to read on and see how he comes to understand this. So let me continue with our story this morning. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, see, he doesn't quite get it yet, 
Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiries for Simon's house, stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was still pondering his vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by, by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send you for you to come to this house and hear what he has to say. Sorry, I missed that one there. And so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, Peter rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him and went in and found many people's persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call a person common or unclean. And so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon and Tanner by the sea, and so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. And now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. We see it here in this part of the story again that God's timing is once again perfect, isn't it? That he's acting very deliberately so that we learn something very specific here. Peter, waking from his trance, is still hungry and is perplexed, wondering what this vision's about. Could God really want him to go and have some pork belly with a side of crocodile for lunch? But almost instantly, the meaning of the vision begins to unravel for him and be revealed. Through God's timing... At that very moment, those men arrive, these Gentile men arrive asking for Peter. So suddenly Peter might click, hang on, this might have something to do. These unclean people that we associate with are suddenly at the door knocking and wanting me. But also through God's voice, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, there are men waiting for you, go downstairs and greet them. But then also by God's revelation... Peter does listen, Peter obeys to the Holy Spirit and goes downstairs and listens to these men and these men tell him that God is at work through a man named Cornelius speaking to him, telling him to come and so God reveals to Peter, this seems to be the reason for your vision, these unclean people are inviting you to their house and Cornelius wants you to go there. I mean, it, may, it raises a quick question that I wanted to address is that, that for us today, when we're thinking about the fact that we need to go to, to, to people who don't know Jesus yet, do we need a specific vision to tell us to go? I don't think so. 
Um, I think because this was the initiation of a new era, that this is God doing something new, that God is being very intentional here because of the perception-changing moment that it is for the Jews. I mean, for us, as, as people in the church today, we have this story. We have so many other stories in God's Word and so many other times where it's recorded that we're expected to go to other people, that we can act and we can live Uh, in this era where the gospel is for everyone and we should expect that we're called to go to anyone. Our call is is to be obeyed. Um, Our call actually is to be obedient. Um, And so so, so don't sit at home and say, look, that that person across the road is really struggling. Um, God, send me a vision of a barbecue falling from heaven and then I'll go over and I'll invite them around for dinner. I don't think that's, that's what this, this story is teaching us today. But what we're seeing here is a call to obedience in every moment of the story as well. Cornelius is obedient when, he, when the angel tells him to send for Peter, someone he's never met or doesn't understand who he even is. Cornelius obeys. Peter here, when the Holy Spirit um, speaks to him, even though Peter still doesn't fully grasp the meaning of the vision, Peter hears the words of the Holy Spirit and says, go down to those people and go with them wherever they take you. He obeys. First off, we hear that he's actually open to hosting these visiting Gentiles. That's actually something that's already a new thing for Peter to do. But it's not the full revelation of what God is doing in our story today. But his obedience will continue to lead him towards it, though. Do you notice that that in the vision that Cornelius experienced, he experienced it three times? That Peter was shown the vision three times? That we actually hear the story of the call in the passage repeated pretty much three times? In the sense that we hear the angel speak to Cornelius, we hear the vision to Peter, and then we hear Cornelius tell Peter about the vision that he experienced. I think our author here, Luke, as he's writing this story, is wanting us to pick up that this is all about God and all about his timing and there are no coincidences here. Like I said before, just going to Cornelius' home was a huge step for Peter. A Pharisaic writing in Peter's time said this, it said, it told Jewish people to separate yourselves from the nations and eat not with them and do not according to their works and because and become not their associates. For their works are unclean, and all of their ways are polluted, and are an abomination, and are uncleanliness. Can you see there that the Pharisaic teaching is about how even going into someone else's house that isn't a Jew is unclean? And yet here's Peter standing uh, inside the doorway of Cornelius' home. But as we move on to our final parts of the story, we need to realise that God has even more planned than just Jews going to Gentiles' homes and Jews inviting Gentiles into their home. Four days have passed since Cornelius had his vision and Cornelius is anticipating that something great is going to happen in response to his obedience. So much so that we see that Cornelius worships Peter when Peter arrives. He's so excited that something's happening, he just falls at Peter's feet and begins to worship And We know that's not the right thing to do, so we, all, we kind of get this idea that Cornelius still hasn't quite got a grasp of, of what's going on here either. 
but also the fact that Cornelius has gathered all of his friends and family. There are many other Gentiles there waiting. God's timing in all of this coming together um, is, is bringing all of this to a crescendo. But what we need to realise is that there's a risk here for Cornelius and there's a risk here for Peter. Think about it. Cornelius is, is, is an upstanding person in his society, in his community. He's invited all of these people to come to his home. What happens if Peter doesn't arrive? What happens if Peter turns up and what Peter says is highly offensive or worthless? Cornelius is going to look like a fool. So there's a risk here that Cornelius is taking. And also for Peter... Imagine if Peter turns up and, and Peter suddenly finds himself in a situation where everything is highly inappropriate because he's now in the home of a Gentile. That these believers from Joppa have come with Peter and witnessed Peter stepping into a situation that makes him horribly unclean. There's a risk here for Peter as well that he could, he could be classed as unclean, that he could be ridiculed by the church. But here, I think that last point at the bottom there shows us that obedience overrides risk. Both of these men chose to be obedient even in the face of the risks that stood before them. And so let's continue with our story now. I love how it starts. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Peter's always opening his mouth, isn't he? But Peter here, I think, has really begun to realise that this is more about just coming into a house. He's here to share the gospel. Because he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in him every nation, oh sorry, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him to a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Peter opens his mouth and proclaims the gospel. But what he does is he actually begins with a new theological insight that he himself has just realised, that the gospel is for everyone. I now realise, he says there, or I now truly understand that God shows no partiality. I get what the vision of all of those unclean food means. 
that, I, that, that God's love, God's forgiveness, that what Jesus did on the cross is actually available to everyone. And so then Peter outlines for these Gentiles gathered in Cornelius' house the two responses that are needed to the gospel to be accepted by God. That they need to fear God and they need to act righteously. Now Cornelius was a devout and um, God-fearing person, but he does this, as he does this, he's doing it in his own actions. Did you pick that up at the beginning of the story, that that Cornelius was acting in a kind way because he was a God-fearing person? He acted in obedience, though, which was a good start, but but because he was God-fearing, he was acting still in his own strength to try and live that out. He was being kind to people, he was trying to do good things. But the key to becoming a Christian, we know, and this is what Peter's explanation of the gospel is to these people now, shows us that Jesus' righteousness is what we need. That our righteousness, that as good as we could ever be, will never be enough. But it's through Jesus' righteousness and our response to what he did on the cross is what saves us. And so now Cornelius and those gathered with him hear the complete truth. That fearing a Jewish God amongst his fear of other um, the other pantheon of gods, isn't enough. That being a kind person, being generous and being good isn't enough. No, it's because Jesus, Jesus who was completely good, allowed himself to die in our place, that now Jesus' righteousness is attributed to us because of our faith in him. That's how we're saved. That's how we become Christians. And for the sake of time, I might not just read this last part, but what we see is that the full meaning of God's vision is presented right at this point. The next part of the, of the verse, um, the, the chapter says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The full meaning of God's presentation of his gospel bursts into Peter's telling of it, the Holy Spirit coming upon these people. This isn't going to be some menial welcoming of Gentiles into some form of belief, but still holding to the idea that the Jewish nation is the people of God and elevated by God in his own favour. No, this is God very clearly saying that now something that was unclean is just as clean as what Israel have always considered clean and that's themselves. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile anymore. There is only a distinction between believer and unbeliever. The Gentile and the Jewish salvation and conversion were exactly the same. The Holy Spirit coming on them and then them speaking in tongues. Now, I don't think this is defining. I know some, there are some parts of our Christian um, brotherhood that, that would attribute the fact that speaking in tongues then is a sign of conversion. I don't think that's what this is teaching us. I'm thinking that this is God here not allowing anything to be different between the Jewish or the Gentile first experience of conversion. So the Jews have no excuse 
they cannot elevate themselves anymore. When the Holy Spirit first indwelt Jewish believers, these believers, we know from the story of Pentecost, spoke in tongues and, and then spoke the gospel of God. We hear that, um, I think it's in about Acts chapter 5, I don't remember exactly, that when the Samaritans, who were sort of the half-caste Jews, first heard the gospel, first received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. So the Jews couldn't say, you're only half of what we are. And now we get the same story with the Gentiles, and God doesn't want there to be any barrier, and so they receive and experience the same thing as what their brothers before them had. God declares what was once unclean is now clean. The gospel is for everyone and the Gentile and Jewish salvation is the same. What an amazing story it is and what an important story it is for us here sitting in Australia today whom I would say the majority of us sitting in this room would have to class themselves as Gentiles. I don't know, there may be a few Jewish heritage people here, but I know for me, for myself, I, I, would, I would have to class myself as a Gentile. This, this is the story of the awakening, of the opportunity that we now have to be believers. And so as we go today, what is it that we can take away as an application as we go forward uh, into our community in Toowoomba, into our community in Brisbane, wherever you live, uh, but also maybe into the community? I know Alon and Kerry are still planning on heading to the far reaches of the world. And maybe that's where God's calling you as well. But, but what are the things that we can consider here today? Well, I think the first thing is, are we aware of God's perfect timing? Are we aware that sometimes things don't go the way we want, but that's okay because God is sovereign and he's in control? Um, just before I came and preached to you guys last time in March... Uh, the week before we were supposed to come up here, a church on the north side of Brisbane was voting um, to place me as their senior pastor. Uh, I'd been working with this church through their application process for six months. It had been a long road. And then the week before we came up here, they voted. It needed 75% to pass the vote by the congregation. It received 73%. There were about 100 people in that room, which means two more people voting yes would have seen us uh, take up a role uh, uh, in, in the leadership of that church. It didn't happen. Can I tell you, everything within me thought God was leading me towards that church, was leading me to be there. I wouldn't have been trying to accept a call from them if I didn't believe God wanted me there. Can I tell you that the last time I was here and I was preaching with you guys, my spirit was fairly broken. I wasn't sure what God was doing. Can I share with you that today, even today, I still don't quite know what God is doing. Um, There hasn't been any other sort of um, movement in that direction for me for 12 months and I've spent my time working in a petrol station trying to, to, uh, just as an employment while I volunteer work at the football. But at the same time, can I say, we had the best season we ever had as a football club and I was involved in a way I don't think I ever could have if I was time pastor, and that God did some amazing things this year through the work of the chaplaincy that I can truly look back on now and say God's timing is perfect. I believe that one day he will bring about a pastoral role again for me, but at this point in time, I don't know when that is or what that is, 
And I'm aware, though, that his timing is perfect. And as hard as things are and how many times things don't seem to go my way, I just need to keep following him and I need to obey him. And as we think about that, do we appreciate that God is also acting and moving in our world today for the salvation of lost people? We might be in a situation that is tough. We might be in a situation where we don't feel like we're um, being overly directed by God. It might feel listless. But do we understand that God's heart for this world is that they know him? That, that God's heart for the church is not just that we gather together and worship. That is, one, that is an important part. But what was it that Jesus commanded his disciples to do? Was to go into all the world. And I feel sometimes, and and again, personally for me, I think when things are hard, I kind of, I put the shields up. And I'll maybe lock myself into my Christian community. And I'm like, God, I'm being battered around here because I don't quite know what's going on. And so I just need the comfort and the reassurance of my Christian family at the moment. Can I tell you that from my experience this year, and I think already being working as a chaplain really helped this, that actually by changing that focus and focusing on how I can go to people who don't know Jesus yet has, has been the only thing that's kept my head above water all year. Yes, I, I, I greatly appreciate my church family and the support I've received from them through this year, but I think I could have become very introspective if that's all I'd relied on and if I hadn't remembered that God is actively moving and he actually has a place for me to be part of his movement in the world around me to help bring lost people to know him. This morning as well, do we need to realise that sometimes we don't listen to what God's saying because we think we know what's right? That, that, like Peter, when Peter first sees this food and he goes, I know that I'm not supposed to eat this. If Peter had been so stoic in that and said, God, I'm not eating. Don't tell me to do something I know is wrong. And when those people then came to his door, he would say, you can't come in here because I know that's wrong. Gentiles can't come through my door. I can't go through a Gentile's door. If Peter had said that, if Peter had been that stoic in what he believed was right, this story never would have happened. This church may not even have ever been here because the gospel didn't go to the Gentiles. We need to sometimes realise that things we might have done all of our lives, God is saying, what was once unclean, I'm making clean. Now, I want to be careful there and I don't want to say that anything is permissible and we should be going into to places that God is very clearly saying stay away from and, and God is very clearly saying this is a sin, don't be part of. But there's a lot of times it's our culture, it's something that, that is almost extra-biblical at times that we have placed on, 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 on what goes on in our gatherings in a church that can stop us from accepting someone who might walk in or stop us from going out to them. I must admit that the language I hear in the football change rooms is very different to the language I hear in church on a Sunday. Does that mean that I start speaking like those football boys on a Sunday? No. But does that mean that I pull them up, that I don't go in there because I know I'm going to hear some stuff, that I'm going to see some stuff, that I'm going to hear some stories that that 20-year-old boys sometimes tell in locker rooms about girls that I don't want to know about? 
I do my very best not to engage in those stories or laugh and show that, hey, that's not something that I do. But you know what? That is an amazing witness of what a Christian faith is. When some of these boys start talking about some of that stuff and I just quietly go and sit somewhere else, you know how many times they've apologised to me? Oh, sorry, Dino, we forgot that you were... You don't like... You're not part of this, you're not... And so I'm now being a witness because I'm willing to go... A football change room is not a very great place for a Christian, but I'm willing to be here just for the opportunity maybe to share the gospel with them. Are we willing to obey even in the face of inherent risk? Even though we may not even have the fuller revelation of what God's plan is revealed to us? Are we willing to go into places where God has called us and be obedient even if the risk is wow, Dean's not turning up to church on a Sunday morning because there's a football gathering or there's a football game or there's something like that. He's Christian, he must be sliding in his Christianity if he's not coming to church and he's going to football instead. But Mo, why am I there? I'm there. My, my church service this morning isn't a service I'm sitting in, it's doing service and being somewhere. But there's a risk for me. There was a risk for me when I was a pastor. Um, Before I was an AFL chaplain, I was chaplain for V8 Supercars for the Supercars Series Australia. Now, every one of their races was a Sunday. Um, A lot of their races were away, and I used to have to travel to to, to different places. And as a pastor, I had the the blessing of the church leadership to be a chaplain to that and to have certain weekends where I could go and work as a chaplain at Supercars. But I must admit, I tread a very fine line because there were some very judgmental people in my church. And there was actually an inherent risk for me there. But I felt at the time that I was being obedient and so I did it. When we speak the gospel to people, do we call them to the gospel in all of its purity? Peter here lays out that, hey, you might be a good person, you might have given alms, you might be fearful to God. But that's not what saves you. What saves you is recognising Jesus as the only God that Jesus is your saviour, that his righteousness is what saves you and that you are obedient to him and no one else. I don't for a minute think that the, the call on Cornelius' life to change in this moment is actually quite big. And Peter doesn't just say, well, you're a God-fearing person, you're kind to the Jews, that's great. He says, no, the gospel... I now see the gospel is for you, but this is what the gospel means. When we explain the gospel to people, do we do it in all of its purity and call people out of the world to actually weigh the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? And finally this morning, are there parts of the body of the church that we might think less of? Um... I've been in churches where the generational divide has been so great that the older people in the church had absolutely no respect for what the younger people in the church were doing. I was the youth pastor at the time, so I found myself caught between these people quite a bit. And I found that I had a great group of young people who loved Jesus, but just expressed it in a different way to what the older people in the church expected the expression of worship to be. And that church was a very unhealthy place because there were different people and because of that, I think the young people also had the issue that they didn't respect the older people 
And, and, and I think that can happen in churches. I think there's so many different things that can happen in churches, not just along nationalities like we have in, in the story today, but along cultures, along ideas about different things. But do we realise today that the gospel is for everyone? That Jesus is doing something specific in our lives, pushing us to go into the world, again, it may be across the road or across the entire globe. But where we are going in all things, we need to realise that Jesus is in charge and so we need to let him do our thing, his thing in our lives and we need to act in obedience. Why don't I pray? Lord, this morning, as we have heard this word of yours, this story, this amazing story of you opening up the gospel um, to, the, to the wide reaches of the world, Lord, we are so thankful, one, that Peter was obedient, that, that this, this is something that has happened through your will. We understand your sovereignty in this, and we realise that we are blessed by it, and so we are grateful. But Lord, as well as that, we also see the then inherent responsibility we have to continue that work of going into the world, of realising that the gospel is just as much for us as it is for people who are so far from you that their lives might be the polar opposite of what we expect when we walk out this door. But Lord, you might be calling us to go there. To people that we would consider unclean, we need to realise, Lord, that you can make them clean and we might be the instrument that you use to help them realise that. And so, Lord, in all the situations in our lives, in all the situations in our church, in all the things that go on around us, we pray this one thing, that we realise that you are in charge and we ask you to do your thing in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.